Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Hello there, Mark Kenny here from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations with a very special episode of Democracy Sausage in which I speak to Stan Grant about his new book, The Queen is Dead. We spoke in front of a live audience at the ANU as part of the ANU Canberra Times Meet the Author series. Stan Grant, welcome back to ANU and welcome back to this stage. In fact, this is, I think, the third time you and I have had mm-hmm. these sorts of conversations. We keep, we keep talking. We keep talking. Mandangu, and could you explain what that uh, message was? I just wanted to pay respects to my people, the, the uh, Wiradjuri, Milroy and Darawal peoples, um, to the Ngunnawal people, the Nambri people on whose land we're meeting here tonight. That's very beautifully said. Thank you so much. Um, now, this is a, a, an amazing book. Uh, I feel like I've said that to you before because you have such a beautiful writing style. You're a very gifted communicator and you write with such heart and that heart... Um, is, is conveyed on pages. There are very few writers I read where I where I need the tissues from time to time, particularly when I'm not reading, um, you know, when I'm not reading fiction. Uh, so um, congratulations on this powerful uh, elegiac book. Um, it is confronting in places. I think it's also um, difficult. It's poetic, um, and it's a it's a an amazing contribution. So can I begin Thank by you. saying that? Thank you, and, and thanks for the observation about the poetry of the book. I, I think, you know, we're storytellers. My family, particularly a storytellers, my great-grandfather, Bill Grant, was known as the storyteller of our people. He used to carry around with him uh, the stump of an old ceremonial carved tree that his mother had given him, which was our family's tree with our family's ancestry cut into the tree. He carried that with him everywhere he went. The only photo that exists of him is when he's a very old man, he's standing next to the tree with a a stone axe in his hand. And he was the storyteller. That's what he was known as. Um, On my mother's side, my mum used to write poetry all the time. And I think it's not enough to just speak facts or truth or history, but to find the poetry 
that can carry those facts, to find the words and the musicality in the words that allows people to come on that journey with you. And I, I think the beautiful thing for writing for me is what the experience the reader has. I think good writing hopefully reveals something to the reader, that they learn something about themselves in the stories of others. So thank you for, for recognising that because that's a very important part of writing for me. It was once said, I think it was by W.M. Forster, or if, that, if I've got that mm. correct, but it was once said, how can I know what I think until I read what I write? Yeah. Is that a process oh, for you? so true. Um, when I write, I don't have a plan. Um, I just know what I want to say and I allow that to speak. It becomes, a, a, without getting too mystical about it, it's, it is an out-of-body experience. It is a, for me, it's, it's a very spiritual experience. It's like sitting with your ancestors. Um, they sit with me. And I would begin, I wrote this book over an eight-week period after the Queen's death, and the things that happen in the book happen during that period. Of course, there was a lot of research and reading that had gone on the years before that informed the book, but the, the writing of the book took place over that period. And I got up every morning at 4 a.m., um, and I, I treat it like work. It's, it's manual labour writing. You know, you need to sit and you need to sit at that, at that computer and you need to, to go to work. And I would write between 4.30 and 7.30 and go for a walk, come back, and I'd write again at night. But the bulk of the writing was done in those early hours. And I would just begin and the words would fall onto the page. And Forster's right in saying that you don't know what you think until you have written it. You can speak something aloud, but when you see it on a page, it has a weight. There is, there is something there that is eternal. You know, I, was, I love James Joyce, and I was reading James Joyce again the other day. This is 100 years plus old, and yet there is still the beauty of those words, and they sit with you. And so I think... That idea that I don't know until I've written is absolutely true. You write, and in the writing it reveals something, it tests you, and then you get to look at that and you sit with that. I love that idea of the, the words falling onto the page. I'll try and remember it when I'm sitting there on a Saturday morning trying to bash out another column <laughs> and struggling with the intro. Um, I'll, I'll take that on board. Um, in a sense, as, as you've already referred to it, this book, is an extension of a piece that you wrote in, yes. the, in the immediate aftermath of the of the death of Queen Elizabeth, yeah. uh, which was an essay or a, a column that you wrote for the ABC website. Uh, there's a story around that, and you can go into if you like. But um, uh, and that 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 essay that column appears as the first chapter of yeah. the book. Um, so I, I do want to come back to that, but I want to start somewhere else. Uh -huh. I want to start with you as a little boy. Mm. Because you actually, uh, you, you talk about being an outsider, being quiet, being bookish. Just, just sort of take us to that. Yeah, um, I think we're always in a conversation with our younger selves. We all are. And I think as writers in particular, I'm haunted, haunted by my ancestors. I'm haunted by our country. 
and there's that little boy that's always there. And I was an unusual kid, I suppose, in many respects. I, um, my mother said I, I read before I went to school. Um, I was obsessed with words and stories. I didn't go to school a lot. Um, my mum and dad were itinerant. We were beyond poor. Um, it was it was a hand-to-mouth existence. We slept in cars and caravans and tents and old sawmill shacks and I changed schools at least at 13 or 14 times before I was even into high school. So it was very disruptive but I, I had this great love of stories and mum would when she went to get the clothes from the second-hand shop, you put a hand in those cardboard boxes and bring home books you get for, you know, 10 cents each or something. And I was reading everything from Greek mythology to Hemingway to Dickens to the Bible to everything um, at a very young age because I just absorbed those words. And that informed me, I think. It gave me a love of story. But there's something else in this book that goes to the question that I've applied those words to all my life. And I was sitting in, a, in kindergarten, it's one of the earliest memories of school. I was sitting on the floor in kindergarten. The teacher was reading us a story and a little boy put his arm next to mine and he said, why are you so black? Now remember, this is you know, 1969 Australia, white Australia policy. It didn't look like this room. This kid was like something out of a Milky Bar Kid commercial, you know, freckles, gap tooth, gun holster on his hip. He puts his arm next to mine and he says, why are you so black? And I've never forgotten that because in a sense, everything in my life has been about that question because it wasn't just a question about what he saw as the color of my skin. It was a question of power. It was the fact that he never had to ask himself why he was so white, it would never have occurred to him. He lived in a world that was so assuredly white. And in asking me that question, he was asking me to explain the impossible. What he was truly asking me to do was to say, are you a human being? Are you like me? How do I understand you? I told another boy, another Aboriginal boy who was in one of the adjacent classes, what happened. And he was the adopted son of the Presbyterian minister and his wife, adopted Aboriginal boy too, of, of, of white parents. And we raced home that afternoon, bounded up the stairs, and again, it's printed in my mind. His mother came to the back door and he said, Mum, a boy at school asked Dan today, why is he so black? Are we black? And she looked at him and she said, and I can picture it. She said, no, you're not black. You've got lovely olive skin. In one day, the world was framed for me. Why are you so black? No, you're not black. You've got olive skin. Black's bad. Black's something to be ashamed of. Black's something to be explained away. That has haunted me. And everything in this book springs from that question because our world is defined by this question. Modernity is shaped out of a racial hierarchy that centers whiteness. Fewer than 10% of our world's population centers it in empire colonization power that still plays out so brutally in our world. And people are still asked that question when you get into a back of a taxi and you're an Australian and you don't look white 
Where are you really from? We're still asked that question. That's at the heart of the book. And also about that boy, you say, in, in sort of covering those, those stories, you, you say, how could I end up in television? Yeah. What are you saying there? I, mean, I, I guess it, 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 I, my interpretation of that was that you were talking about being shy and mysterious mm. and feeling like an outsider. Yeah. And then emerging as an adult, as someone who speaks to millions yeah. and who speaks with confidence and precision. Seeming confidence. Because I have never felt comfortable and I've, I mean, we all have that bit of imposter syndrome, but Australia never felt like it was mine because it wasn't mine. We were told that throughout my childhood. Australia was for other people. We had to explain ourselves. We had to find a way in and it was always on someone else's terms. I don't know what I'm doing here. And my life had to take so many unusual, unpredictable, improbable turns for me to be sitting here. But there was also something about it that was, was fated. Um, things opened up for me at the right time. Coming into journalism, meeting the right people. People intervened in my life at just the right time to open the doors for me. The experiences that I had from a kid growing up in the way that I did, moving around, Aboriginal family, poor family, raised on the stories of my country, the stories of my family. Growing up and going into journalism and spending 20 years away from Australia, reporting the wars of our time from Afghanistan to Iraq to Pakistan to Egypt to Syria to Gaza, um, seeing China's rise, seeing the world unravel from the post-Cold War era to this post-American world where there is this tension at the heart of what a, a ruling order looks like. And here I am from the other side of history, a boy from the other side of history. And of course, been reminded in the past two weeks since the King's coronation of how I am from the other side of history and how you still don't belong and still speaking back to that sense of not belonging. Let's come to that subject, but let's do it by way of the original essay, why you wrote it yeah. at the time and what the reaction was to it. Well, of course... It, why it informed this book, therefore. It really was the genesis of the book because, you know, when the, um, when the Queen passed away, it was such a moment for us all. She represented something to us stoicism the certainty the duty we'd seen that queen staring down at us from school halls to rsl clubs to sporting clubs for most of us all of us in this room the only queen we had known when she died i was sitting in the back seat of the taxi at 4am going to the airport in melbourne with my wife tracy and tracy said the queen's died and the first thing i said was no 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 she's not dead I mean, it just seemed like it was impossible. And then I was really surprised by the visceral reaction. We're sitting in the, the, the lounge and I'm watching the news and I just felt this anger rise up in me. The anger at what 
this moment represented and what I knew was going to unfold. The, the adulation, the mourning of the Queen and yet what the crown represented, the stories I'd grown up with, the stories of the police arresting my grandfather, my mum's dad, for drinking alcohol and chaining him to a tree like a dog in the sun with no food and no water. The crown coming and bulldozing my grandfather's tin humpy to the ground at the point of a gun because they wanted to take the land back. The police wearing the crown arresting my father's grandfather for speaking our language, the language I spoke to you tonight, Wiradjuri, in the street to my father and taking him to jail, charging him with offensive language the children taken away, all in the name of the crown. And I just felt a sense of betrayal and abandonment. Again, I was reminded of what truly matters, that the crown mattered more than our lives. And then in the week that unfolded, we saw on the ABC, everyone wearing black. Everyone wearing black. And I was, they said, oh, you know, you're you'll be hosting the, the coverage tonight. I said, no, I won't. I, I could not wear black and mourn the Queen, not out of disrespect for her as an individual, but out of respect for my people. We saw people censored, silenced. An Aboriginal female rugby league player who was suspended because of what was deemed an offensive uh, Facebook post or tweet that she'd put up about the Queen. The Prime Minister saying to us, now is not the time for those conversations about colonisation, about empire. I felt a choking anger and I wondered what to do with this. And all I ever can do in those moments is write. It's the only thing that never fails me, is writing. On a page, I can find my ancestors and they can find me. And I'm safe. And after a week of this, I wrote an article about my mother, who's also named Elizabeth, who in 1952, when the Queen first visited Australia, like all other kids in Australia, was bussed to the nearest town to see her. She had no shoes and socks, and her brother had to throw his shoes and socks over the back of the school fence so she could wear her brother's cast-off shoes and socks to see the Queen, and then come back to wear the crown had deposited her. And for so many of our people, there is that dissonance between the symbols of Australia and our lived experience in Australia. And something else happened when I published that article. After being told all week that this would be offensive, this is not the time, it's not appropriate, that article was the most read article of the entire Queen's coverage. Three million people read it in one weekend. And I knew, I knew that was another Australia. That was perhaps a more real Australia. So I put that at the front of the book because it frames the book. But of course, we've seen with the coronation coverage where we did have the conversation we should have had then and what's ensued, um, the lies, the distortions, despite the fact that myself and Teela Reid, who was on the coverage as well, were Adjury Wail One lawyer, had framed this with love and respect 
because that's who we are. We are not people of hate. We are people of love and respect, and we speak truth with love and respect. And yet I saw my words twisted. I saw people saying hateful things about me, as if I am a hateful person. My image used over and over again on articles attacking the ABC, accusing us of maligning hard-working Australians, something I would never do. And then to see the vicious attacks on me and my family day after day after day, death threats made, all because we dared to speak within a, in a loving way the truths of our country and told this is not the time. It's a pretty neat trick, isn't it, that at the moment of the transfer of power, the hereditary ta transfer of power, which no one can question, that you can't even talk about that. And even, even with love and respect, yeah. even when we enter, because we enter those spaces with great trepidation. We know what can happen to us. And we enter that with caution and with love. And it can still turn on us so ferociously. And yet look at the people in the room and the incredible, beautiful messages me and my family have received, the support that is out there. This is the battle for the soul of our country. Are we a country that can have these conversations? Are we a country of love or a country of hate? Are we a country that can live with the worst of our past and still find a future together? And in a year of a referendum where these things are at fever pitch, can we be that country? That's the struggle, the struggle for the soul of our nation. So just staying with that moment for a minute, the, the, the debate that you did live on television or the, the discussion you did, invited on there on the ABC to talk as the people were filing into the, the, to the church. Yes, to this, which hadn't even begun. It had point. not even begun and when it did begin, it, which was hours later, frankly, yeah. and it was turgid. Um, it, 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 look, it was, it was, it was ceremonial. It was uh, important for a lot of people. I fully accept that. Um, it felt completely foreign to me. I'm mm. sure you know you didn't have to be a First Nations person to feel that. You, it just Australia did not even get mentioned. Uh, this was the King of Australia being crowned, or as I said the other day, coronated. Someone said no crown, <laughs> um, and Australia didn't get mentioned, and it felt completely bizarre and foreign and arcane and 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 mm. really quite strange. Uh, but nonetheless, um, you were invited on there. Yeah. And there was a strong reaction to it. Um, how? I guess what I'm asking here is a sort of a probing question in a way, but not intended to be. But you've been very critical of ABC management for not standing up for yeah. you at that moment, and uh, which they've very, admitted and now apologised yeah. for. Um, I'm just wondering what level of awareness did they have of the scope of the um, reaction, negative reaction? Are, are you referring to? The coverage, as you say, in the papers which had your image on it and which attacked you, or, or mm. are you referring to social media and other channels? All, all of it. And, you know, this was anticipated. Um, I had raised this with them. I had said, you know what's going to happen. And I'd even questioned whether I should be involved because 
I'm a lightning rod for these things. My family is not just racially and, and, and viciously attacked and mocked and ridiculed now. It happens every single day because of me and because of the position that I hold on television and because of the, the way people see me or the things they hear, even if I don't say them. And people who are innocent, my mum and dad, my wife, my children, um, are constantly attacked. And I, I said to them at the ABC, this is, you know this is going to happen. So how do we do this? And in the end, I thought, well, I have a duty and this is a free country and I have things to say. And nothing I said was untruthful or unfactual. I talked about the fact that next year will mark 200 years since the Declaration of Martial Law in the Bathurst area, in what's known as the War of Bathurst against the Wiradjuri people, reported in the newspapers of the time, as we report the wars of our time, as an exterminating war. This happened. The Declaration of Martial Law by the Governor, under the seal of the Crown, that said that Wiradjuri people shall be placed outside the protection of the law. That happened. It happened that our country was invaded and stolen. It happened that my grandfather went and fought a war for this country and returned to a country where he couldn't share a beer with his mates in the pub that he'd fought alongside. This is our country. And to speak those truths that I, I said explicitly, this is not an attack. This is said with love. I love the idea of what this country can be. My people have fought for the idea of what this country can be. But we are not that country yet. We are not. And to speak those things with love and respect, Julian Lisa was there, a, a monarchist and a, 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 a liberal MP, um, and he and I are, have a great friendship and a great respect. And we spoke about those things with love and tenderness and respect. But that's not what people heard. And the hatred had begun before I'd said a word. The nasty social media blowback began before the coverage even began. There was a, an ABC employee who was monitoring social media while it was happening. And she was constantly sending complaints through to Twitter about the racial nature of the criticism. And they said there was nothing wrong with it. She left work that evening feeling sick at what was said. I knew this was going to happen. What concerned me in the weeks since was not just the social media backlash, because we see that, but the way that the media distorted everything that was said, betraying me as a hateful person, accusing me and, and Teela of maligning and attacking decent Australians. Are we not decent Australians too? We'd said none of those things. I am not allowed culturally to be a hateful person. I am not allowed my parents and my elders will not allow me. And to see that happen day after day with no correction, 
Nobody speaking publicly. Nobody repudiating the hurt and the hateful venom on social media, the attacks on my family. It made me question everything. My place in the organisation, the care people have for me, question my own country, um, question myself. Did I, did I do something wrong here? What did I do to make people hate me so much? It made me question all of those things. It was expected, and yet it still takes your breath away. Yes, very well, very well put. We'll take a quick break and be back in just a moment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Can I go to um, some other aspects of the book? Um, because I feel like there are some sort of obvious tensions within it. And, and this is part of that beautiful complexity that I spoke about at the beginning. Because you, you ask us as readers to, 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 I suppose, to interweave certain ideas, mm. to carry them in parallel and sometimes to, to trade them, to think about how they interplay with each other. There are tensions between... That, that come across because it's a very personal book and I probably mm. should have included that in my um, adjectives as well. It, it's an extremely personal book and you talk about your own faith mm. and I feel like I don't understand that um, yeah. because religion is so often the architecture of the invader. Yeah. It, 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 it brings in a value system and in, under that value system, under those judgments and those edicts, Power is yeah. transferred, often against women, for example, almost yeah. invariably against women, but yeah. against all outsiders and, you know, power is, is exercised. And, and yet here you are railing against that and embracing it. And, and these are the contradictions. Um, all those things are true. But what you've described is a white Jesus. What you've described is Christendom that emerges from Constantine's conversion where Christianity becomes a religion of empire. What you're talking about is the God of colonization, the God who comes with a Bible and a gun. What you're talking about is a God who arrives with the first fleet. God was here since time immemorial. I'm talking about Bayami, our word for God. I'm talking about Jesus, an ancestor. 
I'm talking about a brown-skinned man who was not a Christian. There was no Christianity. I'm talking about a brown-skinned man who was a carpenter from Nazareth who walked out into the desert with a motley band of followers to rail against empire, to be nailed to a cross. A person who spoke of love, who could be nailed to a cross and cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in the next breath said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. If that's not our people, I don't know what is. We did not find those things as foreign ideas. As a Wiradjuri person, I simply cannot ask the question, does God exist? That is an impossible question for a Wiradjuri person. I walk through God's cathedral every day and I hear God in my ancestors every day. In fact, that is the difference between our worlds. The modern world begins with that question. Does God exist? Does God exist? The enlightenment that lassoes God and brings God to earth, tames God. The God that sails on the ships of empire, that colonises land. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the God that was always here and the Jesus that walks in our footsteps and whose footsteps we walk. The God of justice. That's the God I was raised in in the little church on the mission that we came from. The church of the forsaken. This is not a God that answers our prayers. Be easy if you could dial up God and he could take away all the pain. We know God's real because God's not there. In God's absence, we know the reality of God. In the same way that we cannot know love until love is not there. We know love when love's absent and we seek love. And that's my relationship to that. It's not white Christendom. It is a faith of justice and love and a God that was always here and is always here with our people. I don't know anyone in public life who speaks of love like you do. It's, it's, um, it's very refreshing and, and enlivening, I think, to, to hear a man speak of love in so, so frequently and so passionately. Well, it's, I'm not here without it. You know, there's a, my mum and dad would have every reason to be poisoned by the worst of what's happened to this country and what's happened to them. Life was never easy. And I have this image of my mum and dad on those long, dark nights when we'd travel from town to town, wondering where we'd sleep for the night, just moving through the darkness, four kids huddled up in the back, mum and dad in the front, and in the quiet, in the silence, I'd see my mother light up a cigarette, take a drag, and she'd pass it over to my father. My mother never smoked, but she always took that first one and passed it over to him. There was something in that. There was something in the transfer of love, in the small intimacy that said, we can do this. 
we can do it. And sometimes I'd see my father and he'd come back from the, the sawmill. You know, he lost the tips of three of his fingers working in the mills. And he'd sit there bone tired. And my father always felt to me like he had a deep, deep well of sadness in him. And he'd sit there and I'd see the weight that was on him. And I'd see my mother just sometimes walk past and touch the back of his neck. They are burned into me, those things. When I went with my mother to the churches and the charities where we had to humble ourselves to ask for food vouchers, $12 we'd get a month and that would be enough to put food in our stomachs to supplement what dad just could not provide for with his hands. That love is real and I look at my parents now in the battles they have fought and coming to the end of their lives and my father who needs help to do everything. And without that love, they would not have survived and I would not be here. And I'll tell you the other thing about that. Yindyamara, the code, the sacred oath that we are raised in, asks us to love even those who do not have love for us. To live with respect in a world worth living in, even when that world has rejected us. If we lose that, I am not a Wiradjuri person. And if I fall to the hate and the anger that people want to put into me, I am not a Wiradjuri person. Without that love, where is tomorrow? It's a beautiful question. Um, can I just go to one final issue of what I call tension in the book? And I, and I imagine you've been asked this question many times in different forms, but it's the tension between your disdain for identity politics mm. and your assertion of identity, put bluntly. I don't believe I have an assertion of identity. If I asked my mum and dad, if I said to my dad, do you identify as Wiradjuri dad? He'd look at me like I was mad. He's a Wiradjuri person. My, my mother, I've never had heard them use the word. There are different forms of identity. There are the identities that we all have and they nourish us. Those things that shape the contours of our lives. Those identities that are porous allow us to meet each other despite our differences. You're a husband, you're a wife, you're a partner, where you work, the football team you follow, the faith you have, the food you like, the various things that allow us to meet each other. And these are beautiful things. And then there are what Amartya Sen, the Indian economist and philosopher, Nobel Prize winner, called the solitarist identities, the identities that shrink our world to one thing, one thing. And he said those things make our world inflammable. They are the identities that kill and kill with abandon. I have spent a lifetime reporting the wars of those identities. Who are you may be the most dangerous question you can ask in the world. Are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? Are you Sunni? Are you Shia? Are you Hindu? Are you Muslim? Are you Hutu? Are you Tutsi? 
Are you Russian? Are you Ukrainian? The wars of identity that shrink our world. My father, when he reclaimed our language, when he painstakingly wrote down our language in the first Wiradjuri dictionary, a man who had barely been to school, and he taught non-Aboriginal people to speak our language. And I asked him why. And he said, son, because language doesn't tell you who you are. It tells you where you are. That turns modernity on its head. Modernity, the sovereignty and the triumph of the individual that untethers us from the bonds of faith or family or nation, the things that we believe set us free, and when you look around our world, leave us alienated, embittered, and seeking identities that pit us against each other. Or a beautiful idea that what is important is not who you are, but where you are. And to speak Wiradjuri language on our country makes you a part of us. Not the same, but a part of us. That's why it's not an identity that I seek. It is a fundamental belonging and a belonging that we can share. Paul Ricoeur, the great French philosopher, said the, the shortest distance to the self is through the other. I know who I am because I know you. There is no way that identity speaks to that. Thank you. Now, we're going to have time for some questions if there are any... Do you want, you want me to read something? I do. do. I was just coming to that. Um, I, I just thought I'd invite someone, if there is anyone who would like to ask a question, there's a microphone up here. Don't be shy. Um, so uh, feel free to step forward. Uh, and while you do that, I'm going to ask Stan to read because I did say this was a poetic book. The truth is I've put a bookmark in here. Um, I could have put it on just about any page. Um, and I'm just going to ask him to read a passage. I'm not going to uh, say anything about its context. It speaks for itself. There is a story that has haunted me since I first read it. It is written by the man the Nobel Prize Committee said wrote the Australian continent into world literature. As if the stories of eternity my people spoke, the stories painted on our land didn't matter at all. And they didn't. That's the truth. Not to white people. This man was white. And he told a story of a land becoming white. I think now how absurdly apt it is that his name was White, Patrick White. And his story was a Genesis story of a new white Australia. It begins in a forest, an Eden. It is the story of Stan Parker, who takes his new wife, Amy, into the Australian wilderness to hack out a new life, to build a new people. He writes, Then the man took an axe and struck the side of a hairy tree, more to hear the sound than for any other reason. The silence was immense. It was the first time anything like this had happened in that part of the bush. 
the first time, the first gunshot, the first foreign words swallowed into the silence, the new people with their axes, they can't live in the silence, they need noise. Someone said of Martin Amos recently, thank you Stan. Someone said of Martin Amos recently, um, who, who just died in, in the last few days, uh, and I read a beautiful um, tribute to him by the literary editor at The Guardian in the UK, and she quoted someone as saying, damn, that fool could write. And uh, I must say, I was thinking that just then, he can write. Oh, thank you. Uh, he can write so well, and uh, this is why you should read this book. Um, let's have a question from the audience. If you could just say your, your name, please. Jenny. And um, I stand, I just want to say that I don't think there's a person in the room at the moment that doesn't feel a little bit disgraced by what's happened to you um, personally. And I remember that it happened to Hamish before you on the grounds of his sexuality. Um, so I've got a two-part question. One is why you think that the champions of free speech and the enemies of wokeness feel so comfortable using such aggression towards people who don't think like them or speak what they think they should speak like at the moment. And the second question is, what can we as individuals and the ABC do to bring you back to the ABC because we can't lose your voice? Thank you. To the first question, I think we have become infected with politics, infected with it. I think part of that is the impact of 24-7 news, exacerbated by social media. The 24-7 news is a competition for who can shout the loudest, who can be heard over the din. And when you start to shout, you stop thinking and it gets louder and louder and more hoarse and more nasty just to be heard. I don't want to hear from politicians most of the time. I want them to do their jobs. But we have politicians on cooking shows. We have politicians on breakfast television. We have politicians giving us advice. Politicians telling us about the books they read. They're not that interesting. <laughs> but we hear from them constantly and I think we have politicised our world. And when you join that to the worst of identity, then you end up in the inflammable world that Amartya Sen talks about. We stop seeing each other in each other. It's good in a democracy to have a contest. It's good that we vigorously debate these things. But that's not what we're doing now. And I think the media has a lot to answer for, that we have put the blood, the poison into the bloodstream and we have turned public discourse into an amusement park. And this is what we end up with. And I have to accept, and part of the reason that I'm taking a break right now is not just because of the racism. Sadly, I'm far too used to that. Not because of social media, I'm not even on it, but I'm constantly reminded by people and stopped by people 
to tell me what others are saying and my family are constantly targeted. I'm taking a break because I think I'm part of the problem. I think in the media, we need to ask how responsible we are for this world we are creating and the hyper-politicisation of our world and the ugliness of our world. If I return to doing things in the media, it will be because I think I might have found a way to do it better. But then again, I may just want to write because in those words, I find peace and my ancestors find me and God finds me and I can find you. Thank you. Now, we've got a very small amount of time left, so um, let's see how many questions we can get through in about five minutes. Cool. Thanks, Dan. Um, seeing your experience in 2023, you know, I would have thought that Australia would have been a bit better, especially in the lead up to the referendum. I work with young mob and we keep asking ourselves if this happens to you what's going to happen moving forward the Australia that you speak of that you dream of something that we dream of something that our ancestors dream of but I think it's out of reach what is your thoughts on that message of hope and love that you can send to young mob who believe in that um, yeah let me just quote W.E.B. Du Bois the great African-American scholar he wrote the most profound thing about hope for me and he was talking about watching the birth of his son and in that little tiny dimpled hand he said he saw a hope the hope of his people a hope not a hope that is hopeless and yet not unhopeful hopeless and yet not unhopeful it was hopeless when i was a boy absurd to think of a life that I could have had and yet not unhopeful. And I think that's where we find ourselves. Yes, sir. Hi, Stan. I'm Felix. Um, thanks for coming today. Hey, Felix. Um, <clears throat> my question is about um, the media and the problems with it you've just been discussing. You've described it in recent days um, variously as the stench of media. Mm. I think um, quoting Postman uh, as a burlesque, um, mm. How do you envisage the media, we can, we can do the media better? How can we imbue it with the love and grace you've been talking about? It? I'm, I'm not sure that we can. I don't know that we have the language and the love to deal with the fragility especially of the sort of things that I'm talking about. The lives of my people, these precious people who did nothing. We did nothing for what has happened to us that we are the most impoverished and imprisoned people with the lowest life expectancy in this country. We did nothing to ask for this. I don't know that we have the language or the love capable of, of dealing with these things. And in the evidence thus far is that we don't. You know, I think we need a, to take time out from it Someone said to me once, oh, that was a good episode of Q&A last night. And I said, not as good as a good walk. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know that I have done television for a long time that I would say is as good as a good walk or to sit and talk to your loved ones or to open a book or to put on some music. 
I'm sure we could all step away from the news for six months and come back and ask us what's changed, what actually happens if we extract the noise and our lives are not the media. So I don't have an answer to how we do it better. Lucky last question. Thank you. Hi, Stan. Well, a bit short. Um, yeah, as a person of colour, um, I really want to say thank you for um, speaking up on, sorry, issues it's that okay. a lot of people struggle to come to terms with. Sorry, this is so embarrassing. Um, yeah, I want to thank you for allowing us to kind of meditate on our place in the world and understand that we do have a place in this country um, as, a, as a migrant in Australia as well. Um, I also want to thank you for sharing Yindimara from the Wiradjuri people. Um, speaking of uh, using love to combat hate, um, it reminds me of a lot of my... I'm from South Africa, so the teachings of Nelson Mandela. I really respect mm. you um, sharing that with us. Um, so I'd like to ask you how, um, when you're constantly questioned on your identity um, and you're trying to use Yindimara to um, allow people to understand that we are all humans, where do you find the strength? From my um, family, um, God and my family and my country. I was back home recently as an old mission called Warangesda Mission. And uh, Oriel Bloomfield's up the back here and her family and my family all share connections to this place. My great-grandmother was born under a tree there. And hundreds of us came back to this place to share that experience of being together on country. And I stood there and I can tell you there was not a slither of light between God, me, my country and my people, not a slither of light. That's where the strength comes from. And I don't have answers. I don't pretend that I do. And I've felt in the past few days, I've felt ashamed, embarrassed, weak, scared. And that's okay, you know. We don't have to withstand all the blows. It's okay to say, if you wanted to hurt me, you hurt me. And you've, you've knocked me to the ground. We don't have to stand there and withstand this. We've got to find the love to get back up again and to find ourselves in each other. And I just want to leave with this idea as well. When I talk about whiteness in this book, it is not white people. It is an idea. White, the ideas of whiteness have been used against people that we may see as white. Look at the colonised Irish. Whiteness is not white people. Whiteness is an evil idea of ranking a humanity on some imagined scale of race. We're all trapped in the maze of mirrors that whiteness is. And all of us seek to be free of that. All of us. Thank you very much. Can I invite Professor John Warhurst to the stage? It's always an honour to be asked to give a vote of thanks, but more so tonight. Um, I really do feel it's a special night. 
I think uh, the presence of you, of you all uh, in a sold-out auditorium uh, speaks to our love for you, Stan. You speak of love uh, more openly than just about anyone that I have heard, and uh, we want to return that love to you and uh, the love you give to the whole Australian community, and it's an honour to be able to, uh, to do that. And we want to also reject all that you have put up with uh, in recent times, but also for clearly for, for so long. And thank you to all for the, those who are able to ask a question, not just for the questions themselves, but for the emotion behind it. And clearly uh, that every questioner wanted to thank you, Stan, for what you have done for all of us and what you have, what you have offered us. Um, so please uh, join me in thanking Stan Grant in particular, but also Mark Kenny for this evening's Meet the Author. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Could I also say, I've done these, I've had these conversations with many people, and I've had these conversations now with Mark across a whole lot of books. This is an extraordinary man and writer in his own right who has made an incredible contribution to our public life. And I love doing these conversations with Mark. So please thank Mark as well.